on um, the fancy word is ecclesiology. I have not used that word, I guess, yet for the study, but ecclesiology is the study of the church. So, um, but uh, we are going through this study to try, hey guys, we're going through this study to try and help us understand what the church is, um, who is the church, and what are, what are we here for. So, um, I'm going to open us up in a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll dig in. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your grace and mercy that you've shown us in Christ. Lord, I pray that um, as we just sang, that we would uh, be open to hear your words. Lord, I ask that you would speak to us, th- speak to us through your, your word, the Bible, uh, Lord, as it reflects who Jesus is and uh, your thoughts. Father, I pray that you would help us as we um, open up, Lord, your word. Lord, may we um, hear from you and may we align our lives according to your truth, Lord, that you would receive all the praise and all the glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we continue this study, we're in chapter 2 of the book. Um, We're asking a very important and critical question. Who can belong to a church? Who can belong to a church? And depending on how you understand that question will depend on your answer. In one sense, will anyone, anyone is welcome to come. All are welcome to the church. Anyone is welcome to come and worship with us and to hear God's word preached. But there's another sense in which who can come to who can belong to a church has a different answer. And it's not everyone. Not everyone belongs to a church. Now that may sound strange to our ears. We live in a culture where we are trying to be all-inclusive. We don't want to exclude anyone, but the reality is that there are certain affiliations that I cannot be a part of because of who I am. For instance, I can't be part of the WNBA. I'm not a woman, and I'm terrible at basketball. There's another sense in which there are groups that I cannot be a part of or affiliated with because I just disagree with them. For instance, the pro-choice group. I disagree. I believe that a baby in the womb is a baby, and it is not okay to abort it. So I cannot support or be affiliated with that group who believes that and has an agenda pushing that. So there are certain affiliations that we just can't be a part of because of who we are. And in a sense, that is true for the church. So this chapter explores the first part of the definition of church. A church is a group of Christians. Now that sounds fairly simple until you ask yourself, well, what is a Christian? When you ask yourself, what is a Christian, you begin to define the church. So how you understand Christianity, what it means to be a Christian, how one becomes a Christian, what a Christian is, is vital to understanding what the church is. A Christian is someone who has been transformed by the message of Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in the book, they call this another theological word. This is called conversion. The main point of this chapter is that only those who have been converted can belong to a church. I'll repeat that. Only those who have been converted can belong to a church. We began discussing this this morning in Sunday school but I'm going to elaborate much further this morning. 
The, the analogy that they use is being born and being adopted. So we begin this morning by looking at an extraordinary quote from the book, one which is extremely unpopular in our day, but one that I think is true, meaning I think it actually reflects the teachings of Jesus. When talking about conversion, the authors say, you don't choose conversion. You don't choose to be converted. Now, the reason this is unpopular is because it feels like we choose Christ, right? I mean, each person in here, if you are a Christian, at some point you made a decision to follow him. You chose Jesus. And yet, while the view that we don't choose to be converted is unpopular, especially in American Christianity today, I think it's the best view of salvation, of what the Bible actually teaches us the metaphors that the Bible gives us to teach us, to help explain, to grant us understanding on what salvation is and how it happens, being born again and being adopted. How many of you chose to be born? How many of you chose to be adopted? These are two metaphors that show us we are recipients of this salvation we have received. So the problem isn't with our experience. As I said before, many of us, in fact, I would say each one of us will say, I have decided to follow Jesus. I chose him. And yet the Bible gives us a different picture. The problem isn't with our experience. The problem is with our understanding of our experience. Think about it this way. You have a child undergoing serious medical procedures. They're experiencing all sorts of emotions. They're being poked. They're being prodded. They hurt. They're scared. Is their experience fake? No. But they need someone to come and explain to them what is going on so that they can have the right view of their experience. They can have the right categories, the right framework to understand what is going on to them. No, this hurts, but it's not, it's not bad for you. This is to help you. you. I know you're scared, but these people care for you and they're trying to heal your body. I think the same thing is true with conversion. It's not our experience that leads us astray. It's the fact that we don't have the right categories and understanding for our experience, to interpret them the way the Bible says they should be understood. And it actually makes me sad because some people live their whole lives without understanding what happened to them when they became a Christian. How God saved them and what it means. We'll begin in John chapter 15, verse 16. One of the most striking passages that deals with this issue Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says to them, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go out, that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Before you ever even considered following Jesus as an option for your life, Jesus had his eye on you. 
In fact, in Ephesians, Paul says that he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So not just before you ever thought about following Jesus, did he have his eye on you, before Jesus ever created the universe, he had his eye on you, that you would follow him. Before the foundation of the world, God looked out and chose a people for himself. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Birth and adoption are passive events for the one being born and the one being adopted. You know, I think the reason there is so much pride and hubris and arrogance and self-righteousness in the church today is because we've turned salvation into something we do, right? Me becoming a Christian is something I did. I believed. I have faith. I repented. I follow Jesus. I go to church. I read my Bible. I, 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 I. This is what happens when theology isn't important or taught in churches. Salvation becomes a point of pride rather than a point of grace. Paul says elsewhere in his letter to the church in Ephesians, you know, it's interesting that, you know, we call, we, we call this the Bible. And in the New Testament, much of the New Testament is actually written by people who were writing to churches. So as we, as we study what is the church, it makes sense that we would go to the letters that the apostles wrote to churches on how to live and what it means that they've become Christians. And in a sense, Paul's letter to Ephesians is kind of, it's a shorter letter, but in a sense, it's, it, it's like a, um, a shotgun blast. of It just deals with all the issues of, of the church. It's kind of like his theological treatise. In other words, it's his, it's his uh, this is who God is, this is what Jesus has done for us, and this is how you should live. So Paul says in his letter to the church in, in Ephesus, For by grace you've been saved. And it is not your own doing, it is the gift from God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. That means we are the workmanship of God, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let me ask you a question. Who in this passage is doing the actions? Who is actually doing things in this passage? Grace is received. Faith is a response of trust and belief. It is not a work that we do. Faith is a response of acceptance for something given to you. Salvation in this passage is clearly a gift. It is the gift from God. We are his workmanship. So God is the one doing all of the work. He's giving the gift. He is creating us in Christ. He's he's the creator. He's the creator. He's the one who's molding and fashioning us and making us for his purposes. And yet, many Christians walk around proud, thinking that they are the ones who should be congratulated because, after all, they're the ones who believed. As if 
We save ourselves through our own faith. As I said, it's no wonder the church is filled with arrogance and hubris and pride and self-righteousness. If we walk around thinking that I'm better than the person down the street because at least I receive Jesus. At least I go to church. At least, at least I read my Bible and pray. Salvation is a gift. It isn't something we earn or win. It's something we receive by faith. And one of the most interesting things about faith is that in order to receive it by faith, it takes humility. So how then can you be humble and have received the gift of God and yet act as if that makes you better and that pumps up your pride? You see the contradiction there. People of faith are people of humility. Because in order to receive the gift of God by grace, you have to receive it in humility. <clears throat> there are two ways to view salvation. By sending, excuse me, by God, by sending Jesus Christ to die, God provided the way for people to be saved. Or, Jesus' death actually pays the price for those who will be saved. You may say, Ryan, I don't understand the difference. That sounds exactly the same to me. I understand. Think of it like this. <clears throat> the first way is that God created the machinery for people to be saved. But the people have to actually operate it. They have to actually use it in order to be saved. Right? Or, not only did God create the machinery for people to be saved, he is also the operator who does the saving. It is the gift of God that he provided the way of salvation, or is it the gift of God that he actually saves people? Do you see the difference? Has God just said, okay, everyone, here's the path of salvation. Take it or leave it. Or does he take us by the hand and walk us down the road so that we are saved? I believe that God actually saves people. His work is not done just in sending Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is actively involved in individuals' lives that bring them to a place of faith where they, know, where they see Christ as glorious and beautiful and worthy of their affection and devotion. People don't come to those conclusions on their own. It takes the Holy Spirit and his power to change minds of people who once viewed Jesus Christ as disgusting and hypocritical and ugly and not worth a minute of their time to spending days and weeks and years following him with affection and love and devotion and willing to die for him. That isn't a natural thing that people do. That is the Holy Spirit, the power of God at work in their lives. So what good is it? What good is a steak dinner to the prisoner at death row if the guard doesn't unbind his hand so he can enjoy it? God has not only given us the way of salvation, he actually uses it to save people. 
In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the truth of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is powerful to save people because God uses it as the tool to bring people to himself, to redeem. He says, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. See, the power and the righteousness of God is not just that he provided a way for people to be saved, but that he actually is the one who does the saving. Let's look more closely at the two metaphors used in the book this morning to help us understand our conversion to Christ. One of the quotes in the book is, only those who have been born again and baptized can belong to the church. Only those who have been born again and baptized can belong to the church. Now, we say that phrase, born again, and for many of us who've grown up in the church, that's just a phrase we hear over and over again. It's kind of something that preachers pound the pulpit on. And yet, imagine hearing that for the first time. You see, in the Gospel of John, a man named Nicodemus knew that the only way Jesus could do all these miracles is if he was really sent from God. And so he goes to him asking about the kingdom of heaven, and Jesus says, no one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless he is born again. And Nicodemus said to him, how can he be born again when he is old? So if I have to be born again, I mean, I'm a 65-year-old man. How can I possibly be born again? What hope is there for me? Can he enter a second time into his mother womb and be born? I mean, Jesus, what are you talking about here? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Meaning, your body has nothing to do with your spiritual condition. You can be broken. You can be diseased. You can be short. You can be tall. You can be squat. You can be whatever. You were born of a man and a woman, and you got their genetics. That is of the flesh. But when you are born of the Spirit, He gives you something different. In order to be spiritual, you have to be born of the Spirit. That is the new birth. God doing a work in someone's heart and someone's mind to change how they think, what they treasure, what their purposes are, what it is that they love. This idea is repeated time and time again through the New Testament, but I think I only have one more passage for us on being born again. And it is in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Peter says, Blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Once again, I'll ask the same question I asked a minute ago. Who is the actor? Who is the one who causes you to be born again? Is it you and your faith? Is it you and all of your deeds, all of your works, and not cussing or going to church or not stealing or doing all the right things? 
according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Conversion is an act of God. Clearly, God is the actor. Clearly, God is the actor in bringing people to spiritual life. The second metaphor is adoption. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul writes, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. <laughs> adoption is something that happens to you, right? If you are adopted, that means someone came and took you out of one family and brought you into their own family. You are the recipient of the adoption. You're not the one performing the action, but one receiving the action. John chapter 1, verse 12, we read, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of the blood, not of blood or of the will or or of the flesh, but of God. When you are adopted, you are a child by right. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That means we're not all children of God. That means the only people who are God's children are the ones who've received Jesus Christ. They're the ones who've been born of the Spirit. So how does God go about adopting people? Well, we can see God's action in Galatians. Again, this is another letter that Paul wrote to churches. He says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Again, I will direct your mind to focusing on the action in this passage. God sent his son. God takes the action. God sent his son to redeem God's action. To adopt God's action. And after adoption, he sends the spirit of his son. God does the work. So that we can call him father. We receive the benefit of God's actions the steps that he has taken to adopt sinful human beings into his family. It cost him his son so that we could be called his sons. We can be the sons and daughters of God because of his work. And it didn't just stop on the cross. He is at work actively bringing people to faith in Christ. To close this out, I want to return to Ephesians chapter 2. This is a one of the passages that God used to transform my thinking about what he did, what it meant for me to be a Christian. I was talking at the beginning of this message about 
how we are to understand our Christian experience. What has happened to me? How did this come about? Where did this faith come from? I think Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 gives us some clarity, gives us some structure, some ways of thinking about our coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with Christ and seated us, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you were saved through faith. And it's not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we would walk in them. So there's a pattern here. For three verses, Paul describes who we were before we were converted. And then he gives us a description of what God did to change us. So let's look at that quickly. Before God, we were dead. We needed to be born again. Spiritually speaking, we were dead in our trespasses. What that means is that because we we liked all of this sin... Because we liked living our own way, we were dead to God. We did not listen to him. We did not care what he thought about us. Before God, we followed the world. We just lived how everyone else lived. And who was the world following? We following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Who's that? That's Satan. The prince of the power of the air, the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience is Satan. What did he do to get the entire world to turn away from their creator? He lied to them. He says, you don't need to follow God. There's a better way to live. Did God really say? Those are the lies. Oh, he is really good at doing this. You don't have to listen to God. You can decide for yourself how you want to live. What does God know that you don't know? So all of the world, and at one time me too, followed the devil. We believed 
lies. And what was the result of these lies? We lived the passions of our flesh. It means we let our bodies determine how we live. Rather than taking control of our own passions, whatever we want to do, we did it. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Did you know that before Jesus, before he changed your heart and converted you, you were a child of wrath? Well, I didn't feel like a child of wrath. Yeah, because we're ignorant. Because when you follow the ways of the world, you're focused on yourself and you're not thinking about what God thinks of you. So before God, we were dead, following the devil, living however we wanted, by nature, children of wrath. That should be compared with children of God. We weren't children of God. We were children of wrath, deserving his his indignation. But guess, uh, guess what? That's only the first three verses. Verse 4, but God. That is one of the best phrases in all the Bible. Did God leave us dead following Satan and by nature children of wrath? No. What does God do? First, let's look at his motivation. What motivated God to do what he did for us? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, by grace you've been saved. Why do we worship God? Why do we sing praises to his name on a Sunday morning? Why do we sing about Jesus? Because when he does something, he does something for good reason. Mercy and grace and love motivated him to take action. And what were his actions? He made us alive. That is the rebirth. That is the born again. That's the born again. It's not something you can do to yourself. God caused us to be born again. God, because of his mercy and with his great love, he makes us alive. What else does he do? He raises us up with Jesus. Just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, so God calls out to your heart and your mind, and he says, arise and walk. I wonder, has, does that describe what's happened to anyone else in this room? Can you say that God has spoken into your heart and has changed your heart from not caring about God to loving him with every fiber of your body? Can you say that the change is a change of death and life, dark and light? If you're like me, you may say, well, sometimes I feel that way. And at other times, it seems like I revert back to to the flesh and doing things my own way. I understand. That is an element of salvation as well. The Holy Spirit continues to work. Paul says that 
He who began a good work in you, that means when God started, when God called into your heart and said, let there be light in this soul to love me, to be born again, to be seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, he doesn't let go. He sticks with you. God doesn't give up on his children. What else has he done? I just spoke it. God seated us with Christ. That means Jesus Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father. It's the place of highest honor. And guess what? You're there with him. He is now your representative before God. So when you pray to Christ, he alone is before the throne of God pleading your case with the Father. He is now your advocate. He is now your mediator. He is now your representative in the very throne room of God. What else has God done? He created us in Christ. God raised us from the dead. He caused us to be born again, and he's creating and fashioning and molding us after the likeness of Jesus. And for what purpose? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. You see, you don't do good things to become a Christian. You do good things because God is at work within you. God is at work within us to cause us to walk in righteousness. That's why, that's why being a good person is so misunderstood in religion. Because so many people live their lives thinking that if I'm good enough, I'll get to heaven. And God says, no. You being good enough has everything to do with your faith in Jesus Christ. And he creates in you good works, good fruit. I skipped over something. When after he says you've been raised, you've been made alive, and you've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places, in verse 7 he says, so that. The end goal, the purpose for which God does that to people is so that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Why does God save people? Why does God convert them? So they can be the crown jewel of his glory, of his goodness, of his love. God saves people so that as we grow, as we follow him, the heavenly realm can see God's glory through us. That he treats us with kindness. That he treats us with goodness. That he has unending grace towards his children. The church is made up as Christians. The church is made of Christians. 
those who've been converted, born again, and adopted. It isn't that we don't welcome everyone. We do. It's just that in truth, they're not members of God's family yet. All are welcome to come, but only those who've experienced the salvation of God can belong to the church, can be members of the church. So church membership plays a role in acting as a gatekeeper for the church. When individuals who have not been converted enter into fellowship with the church, dangerous things can, be, can take place. We face a real enemy. All those who are not converted, who are not children of God, are children of wrath. They're following the ways of this world, whether they know it or not, whether they admit it or not, whether they understand it or not. So it's important that the church is made up of people who are not following the ways of the world, of not following and believing the lies of the devil, but they're believing the truth which sets them free in Christ Jesus. We face a real powerful enemy who wants nothing more than to destroy God's family, just as he destroyed it in the Garden of Eden. By sowing doubt, by deceit and lies, turning a brother against a brother. And those who do not belong because they haven't been converted are not on the side of God's family. Church membership is not just about who feels at home or who wants to be part of something bigger or who thinks they can contribute. All those things are important. But being a member of a church, any church, this church, is about saying you belong in God's family because he's made you alive in Christ Jesus. You've been born again. You've been adopted into the family of God and you're lost without being a part of God's family. If you're okay with not being a part of God's people, then that means you're not one of them. If you love Jesus, you will love his people. No servant of a king can say they love the king when they despise his people. Again, this is where humility comes in. Is a church filled with hypocrites? Absolutely. Guess what? Every single person who's ever walked to the face of this planet, except for Jesus Christ alone, is a hypocrite. We've all done, we've all done things that we said at one point in time were wrong. God's people are people who are filled with humility, and so we can look at another person who does one thing, who says another thing, and we can say, yeah, there's grace, there's hope, there's growth. Let's turn to God's word together. Let's pray through this together. So let me close by saying one last note. While church membership is exclusive, it is only for the converted. The gospel of Jesus Christ is for all. Jesus says, all who are weary may come. And so the church's doors are open for all. And it is through the call, it is through the proclaiming of the good news about Jesus that God saves people. What I read just a minute ago, that Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation. That is the church's message. 
the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so while the church is exclusive in its membership, only those who've been converted can be members. The message that the church has of the gospel of Jesus Christ is a message we share with everyone in the hopes that God uses that message and his power to save people so then they can become members of the church. It is both the church's responsibility and our job to declare the truth for all to hear. And yet it is also the church's job and responsibility to protect those who have been converted through faith in the message of Jesus Christ so they're not corrupted and led astray by people who are following the ways of this world, who are following the prince and the power of the air, who are still believing the lies of Satan that are in conflict with the message of Jesus Christ. Church membership is vitally important. And it's vitally important because it is vitally important that we understand what it means to be a Christian. So honestly, my hope this morning is that through these passages, and if you need to go and review them on your own, let me know, contact Kara or myself, and I'll give you the references so you can study them on your own. But to give us a framework of understanding what it means that we are a Christian, how God saves us. Because I am not a Christian because I had faith. I am a Christian because God's grace made me alive in Jesus Christ. And the faith that I have is a response to the rebirth. That God called out to my spirit when I was a young man, seven or eight years old, sitting in a pew saying, I don't want to live without Jesus. That was the work of God in my heart. And it caused it to beat. And the air that I breathe now spiritually is an air of faith. My faith is a response to God. It's not initiating anything with him. He took all the initiative. He, took, he made all the action steps to bring me to himself. That is what it means to be converted. And the church are people who have been converted to God's family. Let's pray.